I don't know about you, but I have like a lot of childhood memories. I really do. Um, I remember getting beaten up a lot, but I'm not going to tell you that story. Actually, there's a lot of them. Um, but I will tell you, there was a time in which us kids, we loved to play and we loved to experiment. Uh, we loved chemistry, so we loved to blow things up. But we also, believe it or not, we liked to imagine that we were adults and we would bake. I can remember getting, somehow we got it. It wasn't like it was a Christmas present. We just got it, and it was an easy bake oven. And yes, even guys can enjoy easy bake ovens because we would make these cake mixes, okay, Jiffy cake mixes. And some of them came with the, uh, the, the easy bake oven, but we ran through those really quickly. So we loved cake, and mom didn't have to bake it, and so what we would do is we would take all of these different ingredients, mix them together just right, and we would put it in the oven, and there was a light bulb that actually baked the cake. You guys, does any, did anybody ever grow up with an easy-bake oven of some sort? Okay, a few of those. The rest of you guys are a little bit intimidated because you don't want to admit, like Pastor Mike did, that you played with your sister's easy-bake oven. But you did. They cause house fires, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so you never played with your sister's Easy Bake Oven. Well, I love to do that. But what I've realized over time is cooking is really chemistry. There's certain things that have to be mixed together. It's even amazing when by adding just a little pinch of this or that, that it changes the flavor of things because of how those flavors combine to produce a completely different flavor. Um, there's ingredients to make making a cake, and I may not be able to get all of these ingredients right, but the basic ingredients, there's like five or so of them. You got to have flour. I understand eggs. They have to be a liquid, some oil, and there's like baking powder. Baking powder. Okay, sugar. Sugar's important right there, okay? Otherwise, you know, forget it. It's not going in my Easy Bake Oven. So sugar is very important. I generally like to put a little bit extra sugar just to make sure it tastes great. And, but there's one other ingredient, and I'm going to call it an ingredient, and that is the light bulb. So <clears throat> you, can put, <clears throat> excuse me, you can put that uh, mixture together, stir it up, and put it in the oven. But if you don't turn the oven on, uh, you ain't getting any cake out. So the heat is very important. Heat does something chemically to the ingredients. If you don't have baking powder, it's going to be really flat. Have you ever eaten a cake in which there was no baking soda? It just didn't rise at all? Oh, forget it. I threw it out. Not good. But heat, we used to, I grew up where we would eat bananas, and my mom would do this. She would sometimes peel the bananas and put them in the oven and bake the bananas. And it's, when it comes out, it doesn't taste like a hot banana it caramelizes the sugar in the banana so that the banana tastes completely different. There is chemistry in cooking. Today, I want to talk to you about the chemistry. Now, follow me here. The chemistry in Christianity. All of us have been called to follow Jesus, and I hope that you have placed faith in Christ because what that does is that now allows you to enter into this journey to following Jesus, and I want to let you know right now, it is never easy to follow Jesus. Now, if you want to just coast through your Christianity and receive little to no rewards, I I'm going to suggest maybe you missed something, because in your heart, there should be this desire to pursue Jesus Christ, and all of us God is pulling these ingredients from life together, including the light bulb, and they must all be combined. And I'm going to just suggest this to you. If you are missing any of the ingredients that I'm going to talk about this morning, God cannot produce the ultimate goal in your life. The ultimate goal. Now, for many people, and, and as a pastor, I do plenty of counseling. For many people, the ultimate goal in life is what? It is happiness. I want to be happy. Can I just tell you? And, and I don't mean to burst your bubble or disappoint you. That's just not God's goal for you. Surprise. But here we are as creatures 
even Christians still struggling with their flesh, and then we want happiness. I've counseled so many people in marriage counseling, and that's their goal. Their goal is happiness, and if my spouse would just do this or do that differently, then I would be happy. So, Pastor Mike, can you talk with them? And that's generally, and I have to tell them right up front, okay, when I sit down eventually with the two of them, I have to tell them, okay, I, I have some bad news. I'm just going to share it right up front. But my goal for you guys is not that you're happy. And that's because that's not Jesus' goal for you. Because happiness is an emotion. And when my Bible tells me, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, I'm not convinced that when Jesus was in his greatest trial in the Garden of Eden, that he was just ecstatic and happy, but he was joyful and there's a difference. So in this life, I want you to be joyful in the midst of struggle and trial to be able to praise God. And God is going to use all of these ingredients that I'm going to talk about this morning for you to accomplish that goal. Because you Now, follow me. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I remember a year or two years ago, I can't even remember the guy's name, Sam, you introduced me, to, but it was a, a play about the judgment seat of Christ. Very interesting play as he was the main character in it and the narrator, um, and it was a, like a personal experience. But the judgment seat of Christ is pretty much what reveals what God is looking for us in this life. Second Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, can I say this? That our goal in life, no matter what your life looks like, it is to constantly do good. God rewards that. But let me just say this, that even beyond you doing good, and we're going to talk about this concept of glory, uh, but in, in, in a slightly different fashion, God is wanting to, through your life, maximize his glory. To maximize his glory. We do that, the Bible says, by being salt and light. The, the light of the world. Remember that they may see your good deeds and praise you. Is that what it says? They may see your good deeds and praise your heavenly Father. That is the goal. That as I live this life, no matter how hard it is, that people see Jesus in Mike Curtis and they realize, whoa, there's no way Mike can do that and give glory to God. That is his goal, to maximize his glory through your life. No matter the life circumstances, my goodness, how does that happen? Because when we're going through trials, there is an immediate response, an emotional response on our part that, if anything, wants to resist going through the trial. We just want to get out. But man, that's a key ingredient. We're going to talk about that. Key ingredients, what do they look like? How do we live this life, and what I'm calling, and, and, and well, how do we live this life with all of these aspects in our life working together that I'm going to call the chemistry of Christianity, the chemistry of your life? What is God doing? Bringing these things together to produce something that is amazing, truly amazing. Now, last couple of weeks, we've been talking in a series called The Drama of Grace. We're talking about um, what God is trying to do in our lives. I told you, using an analogy, that as an earthly father, my goal is to take my completely dependent child, this baby, and eventually train that child, boy or girl, to be independent of me. My love towards that adult child that is the context that determines what I'm going to call love. For example, it would be unloving for me to just continue to provide and meet every need of that child. To buy their house, buy their car, buy their insurance, buy this, buy... That's not me training my child to be independent. And for me to do that, as in for my adult child, would actually be unloving. 
I mean, there, you may think of a, kind, a, a circumstance in which that may not work. That's fine, maybe. But that is my goal. And it would actually be unloving, generally, for me to do that for my adult child. But God, as our Heavenly Father, is completely different. He is taking Mike Curtis, at one time who was a completely rebellious, independent young man, he rescued me from that sin, and he is in this process of transforming me. His goal is to make Mike Curtis a completely dependent child of God, completely dependent upon him. How is he going to do that? He brings us through the trials. And so we, as his church, we are going through these struggles, our backs pressed against the wall, seeking God, crying out to him, desperately needing his grace. His grace is everything that he has that I don't but desperately need. I mean, do you feel that way? In your times of trial, do you see God's grace that way, that that is something you desperately need, something from God that you desperately need? Because if you don't, your faith isn't going to rise up. I'm going to tell you this. When you're desperate, you do almost anything. Is that not true, church? When you are in a moment of desperation, don't you try anything, no holds barred, whatever it takes. And that's what God is looking for. Is Mike Curtis desperate? Because if he is, he is going to run after me. No matter what, no matter the obstacle, he's going to run after me. That's what he wants. A young man of God, I still consider myself young, completely dependent upon his heavenly father. Yes, I am young. 60 is young, just saying. Amen. Yeah, thank you. So how does God, what are these ingredients that God is mixing up in your life to produce this child of God dependent upon him, reflecting him so that you end up doing good works and you're rewarded at the end of the age? How does God do this? What are those ingredients? Let's turn to actually the beginning or rather the very end, I should say, of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God's goal, then, is to transform you. That's how you get from being a, an independent, rebellious child caught up in his sin. And don't, don't get me wrong. When I was 14 years of age and that happened, I thought I was a pretty good kid. I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink. I didn't cuss, at least most of the time. And the truth is, I was a pretty good kid. I was a little choir boy. I actually did sing in the, the choir. But I was that little goody two-shoes. But I was lost, and I was trying to find it on my own. I needed Jesus. So he then transformed my life. His goal is to transform you, it says here, from glory to glory. What does that glory look like? All you got to do is just look at Jesus. All you got to do is just look. How did Jesus live? How, it, when Jesus encountered opposition, how did he respond? How he responded, that's the glory that I'm talking about. It's the character of Christ. God is more concerned about your character than your comfort. And so he's transforming you so that you become more like Jesus. Transformed from glory to glory. Now I'm going to start putting up some of the ingredients to what God is mixing together in your life. I'm going to put it on the board here. Turn the page to chapter 4. Verse 7. <laughs> How does God develop this character? Do you, by the way, do you know what character is? When I say that Molly is a loving young lady, you're still young, by the way, loving young lady, what am I saying? That she just feels love in her heart and she talks about it a lot? No. When I say that, when I say that she's loving, I would say it's because she does loving things things. If I say that somebody is humble, what do I mean by that? It's because of the way they live their life. It's a process. It's a lot of decisions and followed by actions. 
Character is defined by how you live your life. It's not isolated incidences. It's a series of decisions and things that you do. So it's the decisions and actions that Molly does that makes her a loving person, that makes someone else a humble person, that makes someone else a self-controlled person or a joyful person, okay? And so this character that God is developing in you must be seen in action. That's why you're rewarded for what you do. God is producing this glory. So enough with that explanation. I want to get into these ingredients. The other week, I thought it was very cute, and I might misrepresent the story, and if I do, forgive me, Juliana. She was back in the nursery, and Jack, they were drawing things, and Jack turned to her and said, Miss Juliana, can I draw a heart? And so Juliana said, sure, Jack, draw a heart. And that's what she expected. That's not what Jack drew. Jack actually drew an anatomically correct heart. With all the blood vessels going in, even the shape, and it was not, did not look like that. And then he pulled it back and he said, I'm sorry, I forgot one more thing. And he drew one more artery. <laughs> and Juliana laughed inside and she said, that's so adorable. I love it. My heart is not anatomically correct. Just saying. But I did my best. This is a heart. This heart, I'm going to say, represents you in what God is trying to do in you. Now, let me read this verse. But we, that is followers of Jesus Christ, you and me who believe in Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, that's going to take a bit to unwrap, and I'm going to take a few other verses to do that, but I want us to look at these first few ingredients found in chapter 4, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians about what God is wanting, some of these ingredients that God is mixing together. He talks about a treasure that is in you. Now, forgive me, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but let me say, say this to you, that that treasure is the gospel, but it is also the Holy Spirit, okay? You can have the gospel preached to you, and for, I grew up with that every week. I played sick so I wouldn't have to go to church. I just didn't want to hear it again, but I, so I heard the gospel. And then finally, I'm 14 years of age. My brother sits me down on a Friday. It wasn't even Sunday. On a Friday, he tells me about Jesus, hands me this track, am I going to heaven? And I'm like, oh, seriously, it's only Friday. And I read it, and can I just say that opposition that I felt while I'm reading it began to fade away. And the Spirit of God began to work in my heart as I listened again to the gospel, and it was like a light bulb moment. I get it. I get it. And I understood faith. I understood what Jesus had done, and it wasn't just this fact. It wasn't like reciting the Apostles' Creed. It was personal to me now. This is me that he died for, and why? And I want to follow him. And that was my heart's response. And when I was 14, during that summer that I turned 14, God changed my life. And God put this treasure in me. I am this heart, if you will, is this earthen vessel. That's what some of your translations say. Mine says jars of clay. There's actually a music group or was a music group called Jars of Clay. And that's where they get their, the name of their band from, Jars of Clay. That's you. You, and in fa you are a fallible human being that makes mistakes, that when you go through trials, it is hard. You hate it. We, 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 sometimes there's a flesh in us that just wants to say no to God. So that's me. That's, that's you and me. That's the earthen vessel. That's the jar of clay. That's this heart, if you will. That's one of the ingredients. 
He places this treasure, the gospel in you. That's another ingredient. Then there is the Holy Spirit, and he places the Holy Spirit in you. It's scripture says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit. See, this is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in the saints. And the Spirit works in your heart, works with the truths of the gospel. And I'm going to tell you what, the gospel isn't just simply a truth that saves you. The gospel is something that, as the Spirit feeds on this, if you will, works with the gospel, it begins to produce this character in your life. The gospel what I'm saying is something you need every day, not just for when you get saved, every day of your life. The truth that Jesus died on the cross has implications that reverberate throughout your life to the day you die and beyond. You're going to be singing about it in eternity because it's a display of God's love and his grace. And so the Spirit of God is constantly teaching me and, and, and using the truth of the gospel that he rose from the dead. What an important truth that is. So the gospel is not something that just simply saves me. It's what I live by. It's what you live by every single day. And so this treasure coupled with which is the gospel and the Holy Spirit transforms me. That's what's transforming you every day. That's what's producing this ever increasing glory. There's like, if you will, a chemical reaction to the Spirit of God in me and truth. And I'm just going to tell you, you need truth every day. It's, it's the gospel, but it's everything else. Feed on that truth. The Spirit of God is going to produce the character of Christ in your life. So here's some of the ingredients. There's me, there's you as a vessel, a jar of clay, an earthen vessel. There is the gospel, there's the Spirit Remember, it says here that we're being changed, transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's transforming you, church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It says here, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we're wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. That's Paul's testimony, day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving, or NASB says producing, is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? So we fix our eyes on what is, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. We need to understand that. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me just take a moment and kind of unwrap this a bit for us. First of all, he says, in view of what I have just said, we don't lose heart. Can I just reference back to verses 8 and 9? Can I do that? But he's talking about showing that this this treasure, what God's doing, that it, he says, uh, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. How is he going to do that? Look at this, verse 8. For we, this is Paul's testimony as an apostle, serving, ministering in a very hostile culture, by the way. They were pagan, and for many of them, their livelihoods depended upon their paganism. They made and sold idols. Very prolific business in many cities, and especially Corinth. Remember the Delphi oracles? Paganism was very prevalent and very profitable in Corinth. And he came and he preached the gospel there, and there was tremendous opposition. He says this in verse 8, we were, excuse me, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You see, there were, there were hard things that he went through to be able to proclaim the gospel to them, but it wasn't, 
Their, their lives were not taken from them. Some apostles, they were later on, Paul's life was. But in these trials, God is doing something in him. So he's not going to lose heart. There is a goal. God, is, God has a goal for your life just as he had for Paul. And God was going to bring Paul through these struggles. Because he has a purpose for him. He's producing something. He's going to use you, church. He's trying to produce something in you with this chemistry that I'm going to talk about to you. And he's going to work through you so that you, in the end, can love people, can do good works, receive rewards, maximize his glory. There's a goal. God has a goal in your life through all of these things. Okay? And so he's not going to lose heart. We need to grasp something. This, this isn't the entire formula, is it? Here's something else. Light and momentary trouble. Light and momentary trouble. He's going to add light and momentary trouble to your life. That's one of the ingredients. It is an absolute necessity in this chemistry. You cannot grow as a follower of Jesus Christ without trouble. I, what I'm preaching right now is completely contrary to the prosperity gospel. Because their goal in that preaching, which is unbiblical, is we got to get rid of this. Whatever we got to do, we got to get rid of it. Because that's not God's blessing. That's not God's prosperity. Where's the financial Success in that. Follow Jesus, you get blessed. I mean, is that not a true statement? But here's my question. How does God want to bless you? If he brings trials, which I'm suggesting is an absolute, uncontrovertible necessity in your life. Is it our goal to pray in such a way that that never happens? God, don't let, no, get rid of the deserts, get rid of the trials. Deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. Don't let this happen. Even death. Can God work through troubles like that? Is my goal really to be successful in the world's eyes? That is, what Hollywood wants to present to us is, follow Jesus, no, no struggles. You're going to own a big home, a nice car. I remember talking to one man. He, was, he went to another church, and he visited our church, and so he shared his financial struggles. And I said, do you want to get out of your financial... And I'd asked him a number of questions, so I, I, I at least had some bearing on how to answer him. And I said, I'm going to encourage you right now, in this immediate financial tr struggle, sell your motorcycle. Sell your motorcycle, and with that money, pay your mortgage. He shared it with his pastor, who preached the prosperity gospel. I eventually ended up having to call the pastor. And he said to me, Mike, I totally disagree with that. Because that motorcycle is a symbol of God's blessing, and you're telling him to get rid of that motorcycle. I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Because at one time he bought it, and now he needs to get rid of it. You know, in the world's eyes, it might be pretty cool. I mean, it's a Harley Davidson. Come on. It was, a, it was an expensive motor, motorcycle, too. It's not like he needed He had a car. So I said, okay, you're in a season in which you need to pare down. You may want to consider selling your home if you're still not out of this financial crisis. Oh, my goodness. But he had a beautiful home. Yep, sell it. Because Paul never owned a motorcycle, never lived in a house like that. Jesus didn't. So, anyway, I'm not going to pursue that. I'm simply going to tell you this. Prosperity, God brings that, but it looks so different than what the world is going to describe to you. And it's not like God never blesses you with a nice house or a nice car or finances. There are times in which he will do that. But that's not our goal. That's not where I'm going to derive my happiness in life. I'm not going to derive my happiness in life when God gets rid of all of this. And some of you, that's your plan. You know, one day when all of these 
troubles that I'm going through right now and all these financial struggles, when they're all gone, then I'm going to be happy. No, you won't. You're not, because your happiness depends on your understanding of prosperity and what you want in life. And if you don't get it, all right? When I, when I would tell my, my kids, hey, you know what? Go to your room, and I'm going to talk to you up there. Yes, Dad. And they would stomp up the stairs. Ooh, bad attitude. Okay, we'll have to do a little bit of attitude adjustment. And I had a very handy attitude adjuster that I would use. Yeah, and so we have bad attitude, even as adults. We have bad stinking attitudes sometimes when we go through the trials. Church, you need them. You need them. I'm not, pray I'm not saying pray for them, okay? I'm not, you know what? Okay, I'm not going to go there. Let God decide what you need and what you don't need. Let God decide the trials and what, they, what size they are and what they look like. It's even okay for you to pray, God, deliver me from this trial. I mean, God has done that. But my question is, what if he doesn't? And maybe he brought the trial so you'd press in and pray so he would deliver you from it. But what if he doesn't deliver you? What if he walks you through that struggle, that hardship? Then your back is up against the wall. And you're wanting to say things you know you shouldn't. What about that? Is there still a God in heaven? Does he still love you? And I'm going to suggest to you, yes, there is. Just like when I would mix up that little batch of cake mix and stick it in that easy bake oven, I needed to turn that switch on to cook it. And God needs to turn the heat on. It's light. doesn't feel that way, does it, sometimes. It's momentary, even though it, sometimes it's years. Years? Yep. Moses had to die to a dream for 40 years. Something he felt God had called him. He responded too early. He did it in his timing and the way he thought it would be cool and great and amazing. And of course, I'm in this, uh, he wasn't the crown prince, but he, had, he, he was a, a son of the Pharaoh, adopted though, but he, he was in that line and yet, he stepped in, surely they'll recognize that I'm God's deliverer for the Hebrews. Not. Not for another 40 years anyway. And sometimes these trials, light and momentary, last a long time. A long time. And we squirm and we struggle. We have to say, God, where are you? And see, we have this recipe in our mind that somehow says, don't turn the heat on. I'll just stick it in the oven and wait 20 minutes. It always took longer than the recipe said, by the way, with those easy-bake ovens. And then eventually you pull it out. And sometimes, though, the heat, when you, when you keep your cake mix in the oven for too long and the heat is too high, it burns it, doesn't it? Or if there's not enough heat, it undercooks. Have you ever eaten an undercooked cake? You kind of eat around it, don't you? And then finally you just say, oh, I'm going to throw the rest away. Now, that may not happen to our cakes. It does tend to happen to our brownies, though, for some reason. I don't understand that. But our brownies are generally liquidy in the middle and then nice around the edges. Now, here's the thing. If you're short on time, don't crank up the heat. I've heard that's not necessarily a good thing. Keep the heat where the recipe says to keep it for as long as it says and just trust the box, okay? Just trust the box. Hopefully, your oven works right. Trust the box. There's one more element that I want to introduce right now so that... This cake, if you will, does not come out burned and it does not come out underdone. Because in all of this, God puts the gospel there in you, in your heart, if you will, the spirit who's a deposit. He brings the necessary struggles, though they're light and momentary, but you have got to respond in a way that is right. Can you look at this in verse 18? Verse 17, again, light and momentary troubles, they're producing. 
meaning they're necessary. He's producing something in you, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, I've just got to pause here for one moment before I get into that last ingredient. This word glory in the Hebrew, kabod, you're maybe familiar with the, what was it, the headless horseman? um, His name is Ichabod. I meaning no, kabod or kabod meaning glory or weightiness. The word for, Hebrew word for glory, kabod, literally means weightiness. And, and I don't necessarily understand that, but I can tell you this. There have been moments in my life anyway in which as I've just been worshiping and you can I'll just say it this, it's as if the presence and the glory of God came down. That's the only way I can explain it. And when it did, it affected me. I would find myself suddenly weeping before him. I would find his presence, I'm going to describe it this way. His presence was weighty. Do you remember when Solomon had just built the temple? And on two occasions, as he's right before and after he's dedicating it, the glory of God in a cloud comes down, and that glory is so weighty that the priests could not minister before him. They couldn't. The weightiness, if you will, of that glory kept them from being able to, they they would fall on their faces before God both before and after the dedication. The glory of God is weighty. It says here that the trials are light and momentary. But they're trying to produce something in you, and that is a glory. The glory that reflects Jesus, ever-increasing glory. And he's producing that in you in this waiting, this glory of God that he's producing, this character of Jesus in your life is heavy and it is eternal. It's not light and momentary. See, that's a description of your troubles. Doesn't feel that way. But he's producing something in you that's weighty and eternal. Weighty and eternal. I just want you to to consider that when you're going through these trials, light and momentary, but he's producing something heavy, weighty, and eternal in me. So how do we respond? He says this, fix your eyes on what is unseen. Because see, that's the eternal, not on the seen, not on what you can see with your eyes. If you read in the next chapter, I think, what is it, verse 7 or I believe it's seven, maybe. Yeah, seven. We live by what, church? Faith, not by sight. I don't want to look around at my trials and say, oh my goodness, life stinks. Come on. Someone asked you, so how was your day? Uh, My day, it was just a bad day. I'm using the nice phrasing. We use other phrases. I had a bad day. What made your day bad? Generally, it's because we had some of this. That made it a bad day. But God looks at it and he said, Mike, that, wasn't, that was a hard day. That wasn't a bad day. I want you to see now with, from my perspective on what is unseen. I produced a weighty glory in your heart. I'm, I'm using this I'm putting you through the trial because I want to see this, the gospel and the spirit. And one more thing, and it is this. Fix your eyes. That, in essence, is faith. Let me talk to you about faith. Faith sees the unseen. And it inspires, and and it, it grabs a hold of hope. Faith is able to look beyond the troubles to what God is doing. You may not always see it. It's like all of those dots, those thousand dots that I talked about last week. And just trusting, though I can't see how they all connect, I know they do. 
I know they do. I can pinpoint some of them, maybe not a lot, but enough of them to say that one is God's love. So clear, that one is God's love. And I see that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. But all of them connect to produce this amazing picture. I I, I just can't see that. So by faith, I'm going to say amen. By faith, I'm going to embrace this struggle. Because there's two things that you can do that will completely undermine this process. And I'm going to word it this way. Your cake is going to either come out burned or it's going to come out underdone. How do we keep that from happening has everything to do with faith. Two things. Are you ready? I want you to write these down. Number one, if you respond this way, in either of these two ways, it will not produce that ever-increasing glory. Number one, self-pity. Number two, anger towards God that just doesn't go away. You become bitter. Those two things will completely undermine your faith. Those are ways in which we can respond in when the heat is turned up, in which you will get either burned or undone, underdone, and not produce what God is so longing to produce in your life. Self-pity, let me just kind of pull the mask off of self-pity. Self-pity is our decrepit way of loving ourselves. It doesn't sound like it, but that's what it's really doing. We don't feel loved by God, necessarily. We don't necessarily feel loved by people. I mean, you are, but we're kind of keeping that out here. And we just feel self-pity. And that's just our way of trying to feel loved. But it's resisting God's love and others. And it's relying upon our own self-love. And we do that with self-pity. And I'm going to tell you this. If there is self-pity in your heart while you're going through these light and momentary troubles, it will short-circuit faith every time. Because it gets our focus here. Woe is me. And it takes our eyes off of what God's really trying to do. And it focuses it on what is seen. Look at all of these trials. God must not love me. I mean, if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow this or this or this. And boy, you could just keep You could have a laundry list. All of us could. And I'm not putting down some of the stuff you've been through. Some of the stuff some of you guys have been through has been harder than mine. But I'm going to still tell you that's light. It's momentary. God is still through that trying to produce something, which is the very reason you're here. I could word it this way. Every person on the face of this earth asks the question, what is my purpose in life? Here we go. Here we go. God is producing something in you. He's got to have the heat to do it. We can either turn towards self-pity or we can turn towards anger. Sometimes it's both. And I'm not saying that if you're angry, it's all over. You lost. God's just going to have to pour, turn up the heat even higher. I'm not suggesting that. But sometimes that anger and that self-pity is an an initial emotional response. Move away from those as quickly as you can, though. I understand the self-pity. Been there, done that far too many times. Anger, I get it. You just can't camp out there. You can't stay there. Because the longer you're there, the harder it is for God to produce in you what he's wanting to produce. The very reason for you being here. And it's not for you to be happy, by the way. So can I just tell you, because I'm not pursuing happiness, I would venture to say I'm one of the happiest people. Okay? God has allowed blessings in my life. I'm married to an amazing woman. I have five amazing children and a church family. I love you guys to death. But I go through struggles and hardships. And can I just say this past year in many ways has been really hard. But I've got to fix my eyes on what is unseen, which means I have to try and see something I can't see. He 
is producing this glory. And I've told you this, Romans 8, but I've told you this before. When we get to heaven, the, all the glory that God is producing in our lives through this, he's one day going to reveal it to you. Romans 8, 18. And he, 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 he calls that. He says, finally, when we are with him, he's going to reveal to us that glory. And I called it the underside of the tapestry. Excuse me, the, the top side of the tapestry because now we're just looking at the underside. And it's a mess. It really is. All those colored pieces of yarn tied together, it looks terrible. That's what you're producing? Oh, Mike, it's because you can't see the unseen. When you get to heaven and you look at that, it's going to be a beautiful tapestry. A beautiful tapestry. It is going to be something that the glory that's produced in you far outweighs all of this. And you're going to say, man, it was worth it. I would never want to go through those struggles ever again. But man, what they produced in me. Thank you, Lord. Now here is what Job did. And it's an expression of faith. And if you're getting caught up in self-pity, caught up in this anger, because you don't understand and you want to stomp your feet and say, God, why? I get the why question. But here's what Job did. And, and, and I commend this man because he did it right at the beginning. He said, naked I came into this world, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And see, praise is the language of faith. When we can truly praise God, as we were singing, in the desert, that is when as God turns up the heat and he allows these things, that's when, if you will, the cake is done just right. Not overdone, not underdone, just right. And God produces something beautiful in your life. Or you can make the choice. Instead of praising God, you're going to do what every other human being does. And that is you're going to turn to self-pity. And you're going to turn to anger or bitterness. And you will be stuck. You will be stuck. But faith releases that, 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 that key ingredient from our part that we bring to the table. Faith then says, God, no matter what, in this drama of grace, I'm seeing your love and I don't understand all of these things that are happening in my life, but God doesn't ask us to, but by faith I'm saying, yes, God, and I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to look to you because in my weakness, I am desperately dependent upon you and I need you now. Everything that you have that I don't have but desperately need, that's what I'm asking. God, bring it. Step into this difficulty that's beyond me. It is beyond you. What does Paul say? I read it to you last week, and I'm, I'm going to end with this. He says this in chapter 1. We were under great pressure. Listen to this. Far beyond our ability to endure. So that we despaired of life. The light and momentary trouble. For Paul at points in his life. It was beyond him. It was beyond his control. If it continued he would die. Can I just say. In 66, 7, 8. Somewhere around in there. He did. But this is well before that. More than 10 years before that. It wasn't his time. But I tell you what. He felt like he was going to die. He went through Asia. There was a riot in Ephesus. They hauled him into the theater. God spared his life. They were going to kill him. He despaired of life. It was beyond us. Do you feel that way sometimes, that this trial, the struggle, this trouble is beyond you? Well, it was for Paul. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And with that very same power that God used to raise his son from the dead, that power that I'm talking about, that's what he brings into your situation. Exactly the amount that you need. The amount of heat, the amount of time. It's got to be just right. And we say, God, then so be it. It's okay to pray, God, deliver me. But if he doesn't, God, this is all producing something in here that is eternal, weighty. It's part of his eternal purpose, part of this drama of grace that he is saying, wow, 
earth, you may not get it, but heaven is like amazed at the wisdom of God in all of this. It's beyond you. I get that. It's beyond me. I don't understand it. But today I'm making a choice. I'm going to focus not on the things that I see and the struggles and how hard it is. I'm not going to turn to self-pity. I'm not going to turn to anger and bitterness. But I'm just going to say, God, I am yielded to you because God promises enough grace. Just enough for you. Just enough. You can't make it on your own. Paul even said it's beyond my ability. Why? So that God's grace would shine even brighter. Can you let him do that in your life today? Can you say, yes, Jesus, I don't understand it, but I'm looking to you. I desperately need you. Thank you, Father. Praise you. Blessed be the name of God. And speak that language of faith. And welcome him in all that he has. And I'm going to promise you this. I would die on this truth here. God will keep his promise. And he's going to produce something in you that when you get to heaven, you're going to look back and say, wow, God, really? That's what you did? Man, thank you, Jesus. Can you stand with me? This is who our God is, church. This is who the God that sent his son to this earth to die on a cross and be raised from the dead is willing to do for you. All of these ingredients working together. So how are we going to respond? Father, I just ask you, let faith rise up within us. Let faith rise up so that we are willing to speak to the mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. But if you choose not to do that, Lord, then you are going to still produce this eternal weight of glory. Father, remember when I was 14, I got saved, and I prayed, God, no matter what it takes, make me more like your son, Jesus. And so that's our prayer today, God. Make me more like Jesus. Father, I have to confess to you, I don't like pain. I don't like struggle or trouble. But you've brought me through enough. I would never want to go through it again. But you've brought me through enough, and you've endeared my heart to you. And I trust you. And today, not just for me, but every one of us, God, stir up that faith. Don't let us turn to the self-pity, the anger or bitterness. Father, stir up faith that looks to you, sometimes in tears, and says, God, have your way. If you choose not to rescue me, then produce something of eternal significance in here. Because I am following Jesus. I am following Jesus. No matter what. So Father, do this in every single one of our hearts. In this chemistry of Christianity, you've called us to produce something absolutely pleasing and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray.